Hello and welcome to the podcast made to hopefully make you feel a little bit better about the world and a little bit more connected to the nonprofit world. We are going to be chatting with nonprofit leaders and founders, giving them a platform to share their stories and collaborate with others because we believe that when we join hands, we can stand that much taller and make the world better. So sit back, plug in, and let's create some good. This is Nonprofit Connect with me, Matt Barnes. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Connect. I am so excited about this episode. There's a lot of great stuff. But before we get to that, I was thinking the other day, I've been having so much fun connecting with these people from different nonprofits, hearing what they have to say, and making some new friends. But I want to connect with more people, right? So if you would like to connect with me, Matt from Rogue is my handle on pretty much all the social medias. But, it's, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. That's a great place to connect. And you can send me a message there. And especially if you know somebody who needs to be a guest on this podcast, somebody we need to hear from and learn from, send them our way. And LinkedIn's a great place to do that. So Matt from Rogue, just search for me on there and you'll find me. My guest today is Tamara Ryan. She is the chief executive officer at Women's Bean Project, and they are a nonprofit organization providing transitional employment in their food manufacturing business to women attempting to break the cycle of chronic unemployment and poverty. And it is super impressive. Like, I was so excited to learn about this nonprofit. It's also fun to learn about all these new nonprofits. Tamara is incredibly accomplished as an individual as well and was so impressive to talk to. She is the recipient of many, many awards, including, but not limited to, she was named Top 25 Most Powerful Women in Colorado by the Colorado Women's Chamber of Commerce. Converse? Did I say Converse? She wasn't named that by shoes. Chamber of Commerce. Anyway, she was a Titan 100 CEO. I don't know what that is, but it sounds very impressive. And a 2022 Social Entrepreneur of the Year by the Colorado Institute for Social Impact. She's an author. She's got a book out called Third Law. She's got a new one she's working on. She's a speaker. She's done a TED Talk. She's spoke at the 2022 Ethical Leadership Forum. She's been a guest on podcasts, including Nonprofit Radio, and now Nonprofit Connect. Today, you guys get to hear from Tamara Ryan. We talk a lot about leadership. We talk a lot about just different aspects of running a nonprofit and all the lessons that she's learned in the last 20 years of running Women's Bean Project. It's awesome. It's so insightful and helpful. I think you're going to absolutely love it. And we will be back with Tamara right after this. Nonprofit Connect with Matt Barnes is brought to you by Rogue Creatives. Did you know that your brand has a personality all of its own? Well, it does. Or it should. But maybe it doesn't. How do you know if it does? Here's what you do. Ask yourself, does the way you describe your organization match the way you describe your branding? Because it really needs to. Why? Because people don't connect with organizations. They just don't. They don't feel connected to them. They, They feel connected to characters. They feel connected to personality. So it's super important that your brand has a personality that connects with the right people to bring them into your story. And that's what Rogue Creatives is all about. We've developed our very own process called the Strategic Storytelling Framework to define your brand personality and create a brand foundation that will make sure your organization has that main character energy that connects with others and pulls them right into your story. And by the way, it works. And we got the receipts. Our nonprofit clients have seen incredible increases in giving that have allowed them to help even more people and make the world a better place. Get started today by visiting roguecreatives.com slash NPC. That's NPC for Nonprofit Connect. You can schedule a free brand consultation and take our free online brand character quiz. And we all know that everybody loves a good online quiz, especially when it's free. So get over there and do that because it's it, why not? Why wouldn't you? You love it. It's going to be fun. 
That's rogecreatives.com slash NPC to begin defining your brand character today. There's no commitment or risk for you at all. And honestly, we just can't wait to meet you. We, we kind of think we could be good friends. I think we could hang out. You could buy us lunch. We can help you with your branding and talk about the shows we're binging or whatever. It'd be nice. Rogue Creatives. Seriously. Creative storytelling. All right. On with the show. So I'm here with Tamara and excited to get to know somebody new for the first time. So far, our, our guests have all been people that I've worked with or interacted with in different ways. And Tamara, your first new guest. So I'm really happy to have you here, Tamara. I'm honored that we've been connected. Yeah, this is really fun. Okay, so before we get into nonprofit stuff, which we will get into, we always start with a segment we call three random questions. So I've got a whole list of really just kind of random questions, and then I put it in a randomizer and it chooses three. And that's how we'll start. So question number one, you ready? Yep. Okay, question number one, what is your guilty pleasure food? I hate to say it, but it's wings. Oh, yeah? Like buffalo wings, yeah. All right. You like them really spicy or? No, I like them when there's the combination of sort of that vinegary taste, but also a little spicy and the blue cheese dressing. All right. Okay. There's nothing wholesome or anything about them, but that's what makes them a guilty pleasure, I of guess. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, that's if it was wholesome, it wouldn't be a guilty pleasure. If you said salad, I would be disappointed. You know? <laughs> so would I. <laughs> Okay. Question two. Best vacation you've ever been on? Oh, gosh. This was many years ago. My now husband, but then boyfriend and I went to Costa Rica and we went for two weeks. And it was like reverting back to being little kids. And we watched the carpenter ants, you know, walk through the forest and the two toad sloth, you know, grooming themselves. And uh, it was just a fantastic you know, be with nature kind of trip and just so relaxing. Oh, that sounds amazing. Which now that I say that, I think, why haven't I had one that relaxing since then? <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, you get started and it's hard to stop. A lot of people do zip lining there, right? Did you guys do that? We didn't do it in Costa Rica. We've done it a bunch of times since then, mostly in Mexico. Oh, okay. I've done it. I just did that for the first time last year in Maui and it was really cool, but I would love to do that in a really tropical. I mean, Maui is obviously a tropical place, but I know they do it like in the rainforests and things like that. That sounds fun. Yeah, I think we at that point maybe hadn't suspended disbelief that we would actually fall to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow later we got over it, but on that trip we hadn't. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Last question. What's the biggest or best thing you gained from the pandemic? Everybody's very focused on like how hard it was, but I think, you know, I feel like everybody gained something good from it too. I think that it was an opportunity to slow down a little bit. And you know, one of the things I miss actually was at the time we had to have sort of this weird convoluted schedule for when people were allowed to be at work. Yeah. And so that gave me a lot of mornings where I would get my cup of coffee and go sit on the porch and work and, you know, maybe do emails or plan for the day or things like that. But now that I feel the compulsion to get into work and I miss that part. Yeah. And then the second thing is we got a pandemic puppy. Oh, nice. So we didn't have any pandemic children, but we did get a pandemic puppy named Otis, who's a black golden doodle. So that's a nice, he's very sweet. So that's a nice outcome. Oh, that's great. That's lovely. Awesome. All right. Well, let's get into this. You know, you're working. Well, tell us a little bit about what you're doing and your position and Women's Bean Project. Sure. I am the CEO of Women's Bean Project, 
which is an employment social enterprise based in Denver. We were founded in 1989. So we were founded before what we do really had a name. And our founder saw that women were using the daytime services of a homeless shelter and kept cycling through over and over again. And so while the shelter kept them safe, it didn't really do anything to help them break the cycle of what was leading them to homelessness to begin with. So she invested $500 of her own money and put two women to work making 10 bean soup. And 34 years later, we are a $3 million operation that is still a food manufacturer and a human services organization under one roof. We believe that all women have the power to transform their lives through employment. So we hire women experiencing chronic unemployment. A typical woman we hire hasn't had a job longer than a year in her lifetime, though the average age is about 38. Okay. So we work with them for six to nine months. So we are a transitional employer. Our whole goal is to help her learn the skills that she needs and stabilize her life so that she can move to mainstream employment. And we do that. It's sort of like having a laboratory, I suppose, on some level of business. And we sell our products today all over the country. We're in about a thousand stores across the U.S. and lots of online relationships and 50 different food products. And it all exists to employ women and help them, as I said, stabilize their lives. So it's a really cool way to run a business and a really inefficient way to run a manufacturing operation. (laughs) But yet, the cool thing is we get to witness this transformation that women have. And really, ultimately, we believe, I personally believe that when you change a woman's life, you change her family's life. And so this opportunity to be a part of that transformation where when she graduates our program and goes on into the community, we're really getting to witness not just a personal transformation, but a family transformation. I think that's probably the coolest thing about all of it. Yeah. When you say that, because I saw somewhere you maybe it was in your TED talk, you had said something about that. And, you know, when you change a woman's life, you change their whole family. What does that look like? What's I don't know. How does that play out? Well, it plays out predominantly in her being able to not just get a job, but to keep it for the long term and not just have any old job, but leave here with a career entry level job. So it's going to be a job for an, with an opportunity for advancement and benefits and often different than any job she's had before. Yeah. So it it tees her up for a career where she is going to stay. We'd spend a lot of time helping her identify what that job is going to look like, what the career is going to look like, so that it's sticky. You know, that's how I think about it. We want both the change that she makes in her life when she's with us to stick, but we also want the job to stick. What we know is that a year after graduating our program, 95 plus percent of women are still employed. Wow. I mean, it's really cool what you guys are doing. This is awesome. It's really cool to watch. I will tell you that. And it's the hardest thing I've ever done. But at the same time, it's, you know, when you do something really hard and, you know, it's kind of like, eh, the results are okay, then it's not nearly as satisfying. But when you do something really hard and you see somebody's life be changed, that's really, you know, it's kind of addictive in some ways. Of course. I mean, yeah, that's amazing. Let's go back a little bit. You did a TED Talk. First of all, I want to say that and people can go and find it. Tamara Ryan, they can just Google that, right? Like it'll come up. Yeah. Okay. TEDx Mile High is what it was. Okay, perfect. So, oh yeah, TEDx Talk. So you'd mentioned that you had spent a good amount of time in the private sector, 15 years. What did you do before this? Well, back up even before that, I have two science degrees. Oh, okay. And I only bring that up because it 
makes perfect sense of how I got <laughs> today. I have two science degrees. And after finishing my master's degree in physiology, I went to work for a for-profit subsidiary of Rush Medical Center okay. in Chicago. And so we would take ideas out of the medical center and take them to market, which in hindsight was a social enterprise also, but you know, it wasn't being called that. And I did that. That gave me an opportunity to both use my science background to talk to scientists and physicians. Specifically, I worked in medical education. Okay. And then I also, because it's very much a learning institution, I had the chance to do a bunch of work or a bunch of education and marketing. And so I became a marketer out of that. And I, it made me realize that I initially thought I was going to be a researcher, that my personality is way better suited for marketing than it is for research. I can take the research and tell a story about it, which tells you something. Yeah. And so from there, I then went to work for an internet company. And it was from 99 to 2003 that I was working in this online space, which was a really interesting time to be in the online space. It reminded me of what perhaps the roaring 20s were like, where it was about innovation and creativity. And at that time, people were still talking about, you know, eyeballs and not there wasn't a clear plan for how things were going to be monetized. And people were then still saying, well, nobody would ever buy furniture online, right? Like, <laughs> how would you ship it? Or nobody would buy shoes online. You'd have to try them on. So that was a really cool, innovative time to be in that space. And I had come back to Colorado. I'm a fifth generation Coloradan. And I had got, lived in New York and Chicago to see what other places were like. But I had come back and I really wanted to get a connection back in the local community. The company I was working for was based in New York. And so they didn't really have that for me. So I began volunteering. So I was a partner in social venture partners. And then I also started volunteering at Women's Bean Project. Okay. And I started volunteering because I loved the business model. I loved that there was this business and the better the business did, the more the mission could be advanced. Yeah. And so I got onto one of the committees, the sales and marketing committee, and I did that for about six months and the position of CEO came open and I knew the perfect candidate and that was my girlfriend, Sarah. Okay. And so I tried to talk Sarah into applying for the job until she was like, if you think it's so great, why don't you apply? <laughs> and so that was the beginning of my nonprofit career. Wow. So you kind of stumbled into it a little bit. <laughs> yes. And in fact, my first answer to her when she said, why don't you apply? I said, no, I'm not a nonprofit person. That's your realm. And she said, it's a business. Right. And, you know, and in our case, even more so. Sure. And so it took a little pushing, mostly because like anything, when you don't see yourself as within a paradigm, until the paradigm shifts, I think you, one tends to deny. Yeah. I was a denier. <laughs> <laughs> but it's such an important, this is something that has come up time and time again in, in our, in my conversations with people in nonprofits and on the podcast, as we've been doing these first episodes, is it's so important to embrace that paradigm shift and to not be afraid to look at your nonprofit as a business and run it that way, the way that you would a successful business, finding the right people, paying them well, taking care of, you know, all of that kind of stuff, because people tend to think that nonprofits should be run on a shoestring budget and that whole thing breaks down very quickly if, if you examine it at all. But on the surface, it sounds like, oh, we're so sacrificial. How has that been a challenge for you with donors and kind of bring them into that, like, you know, business-like mentality? It depends. So some 
It has not. And others, it's been a challenge. I really try to think about it as what's the larger story we're telling. And so if we run a strong manufacturing business and create product and sell and do a good job of selling it, we're advancing the mission. And what I've found is that that's ultimately what people really want to know is my investment either through the purchase of products or through a grant or a donation, is my investment being well cared for? And how are you using my money? So I think about it and how I communicate often with donors is we're putting your money to work. And that's a kind of a nice metaphor for the work that we do as an organization. But helping people think about it as an investment in something, an investment in the community, an investment in human capital, is how I prefer to frame it because I think that we all look around and see things we don't like, but we don't all do something about it. And if I can see something in the community that I would like to help with, but I can't personally, you know, as a donor or just as a citizen, can't necessarily do something about it, I'd sure love to help a group that can. Yeah. And so that seems to resonate. When I started, and this is particularly poignant for our history. In 2002, Women's Bean Project went through a financial crisis and almost shuttered. And so I came on in 2003. I think I thought the financial crisis was kind of over, but it was really just sort of, you know, the bleeding was sort of stopped for a period of time, but the things that caused the crisis really weren't over. And so there were a lot of things we had to do to shore up our operations, to enlist people in the solution. At the time, we had 45 donors total. Wow. Which, you know, it's good. It's easy to know them all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Very relational. Yes, but it's not very sustainable over the long term if you want to grow. And so there were so many different issues that needed to be addressed, not the least of which is we needed to really take a step back and talk about our value proposition. So why do we even exist? And why do we make a difference in the world? And when we say someone is successful after she's graduated our program, what does that look like? And then we need to build a program that leads up to that. And there were a lot of sort of really basic things about who we are and why we exist that really hadn't been addressed. And as we were addressing them and communicating them with donors and foundations and customers, all of the resources started to come together. Because, you know, people can buy into the idea that you're doing work for a purpose. Yeah. I think you begin to have trouble when they're not entirely understanding what the purpose is or what you've accomplished with their money. Yeah. What do you think, you know, when you came into this again after being in the private sector for so long, what was the greatest maybe perspective or advantage that you brought from the private sector to Women's Bean Project? Well, at the risk of sounding like a carpenter with a hammer who sees everything <laughs> as a nail, you know. <laughs> I came from a marketing, you know, and a branding perspective. And I think some of it was initially thinking about what is our brand promise? What is it that makes us need to exist? And what are we promising the community that we're going to do with their resources? And, you know, what does a graduate of Women's Beam Project, you know, she gets a certificate. When someone sees that certificate, what does it mean? Because if it doesn't mean anything, then we don't really have much to offer, has to have meaning. So a lot of the work initially was around that. And then I will tell you, it was a big part of the work that we did was just shoring up processes 
and systems. And you know, we're a manufacturing operation, so there should be standard operating procedures for everything that we do. But at the time, there weren't. And so it wasn't sexy, honestly. And it, in <laughs> fact, I remember at the time, I had a notebook. So in one of my past career lives, I taught stress management classes. And one of the theories about stress and the reason we perseverate around stress is because our brain is secretly afraid that we're going to forget. And so we just keep cycling through the thoughts. To that end, one of the strategies to manage stress is to write down your worries, like put them in your pocket. So you're sort of assuring your brain that I'm not going to forget. It's right here. Yeah, I got this. <laughs> yeah. So what I had was a little piece of paper wasn't going to do it. I had a notebook and I would just, every time I ran into a problem, I'd just write it down because I knew in that moment I wasn't going to be able to solve it. But ultimately over time, we were going to have to solve for all these challenges. One of the more satisfying things was probably three-ish later, I was able to go back through that notebook and realize that we had solved those problems. Of course, there were probably a whole bunch of new ones, but <laughs> but that, you know, just even that idea of, okay, what are we trying to accomplish? Start with the end in mind. And I think that's when I really personally and professionally developed that philosophy where our staff will roll their eyes when I say this, but, you know, let's start with the end in mind. If we want it to look like this at the end, what do we need to do to get to this? But if we have no idea where we're going, we won't know when we get there. Let's just be really clear on that. So let's figure out where are we headed for and what do we want to accomplish? What does success look like in this context? So it was asking that question and then saying, okay, if success looks like this, here are all the things we need to do to get there. Yeah. I mean, that's the key to building just effective strategy, right? Like you paint the picture, you get everybody going, okay, yeah, we all agree on that. We can go there and then build. Okay. So how do we get there? Let's set the steps out. How, you know, the, with the things you were just talking about with the marketing and kind of perspectives, the processes, all of that that you sort of brought in, how difficult was that? Like, was there resistance to, because, you know, a lot of, from what I've experienced, a lot of smaller nonprofits especially will tend to, they like it. You know, we're a little more grassroots. We're a little more loosey-goosey about things. And they sometimes resist. And maybe not even just nonprofits. I think even small businesses, it's like, we don't want to grow or we don't want to, you know, limit ourselves or feel like we're becoming too corporate or that kind of thing. Yeah. So I think two things were going on. One was that because of the crisis in 2002, everybody knew what staying the same looked like. Okay. <laughs> that <Yeah. laughs> meant we weren't going to be around. Right. And so when you're, honestly, when you're painted in a corner, I think when an organization is kind of painted in a corner, change can be a lot easier to implement. So that's a kind of a good time to come in and be a change agent yeah. <laughs> when staying the same is not a choice. That said, my role as the leader of Women's Bean Project was the first time I'd ever had a job where that was public facing, where other people could weigh in on decisions I was making. I just never had that experience before. Other people meaning outside of the organization. So I had a number of experiences early on where I would hear from longtime supporters of the organization that things like, well, a group of us were got together last night and we were talking about you over dinner. <laughs> well, Matt, I can tell you, I am not that interesting. So <laughs> that was just a really weird thing to hear. Or people would say, I really don't like the decisions you're making. Sure. And again, I'd never really had that experience where people outside of whatever company I was working for had the ability or I guess the platform to weigh in. Yeah. And so there were a lot of times in the process of doing what I thought was right. I honestly felt like all I really had was the courage of my conviction that I was doing the right thing. Yeah. 
did you, you know, different nonprofits are structured a little differently or have different types of support mechanisms. Did you have a board that was supportive or was it a lot of convincing? Again, they were supportive in part because they knew what staying the same would look like. Yeah. And I think, and I suspect this happens a fair amount. They were so relieved when I came on the first board meeting, when I started half the people came. Okay. Cause I think they were like, Phew, okay, she's here. I can <laughs> check out a little bit. And some people really having been through what they thought was, you know, the crisis was over, having been through that, they didn't want to be on the board anymore. Okay. You know, there's nothing like a crisis to scare people away. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You're like, oh, I don't want to deal with this. Yeah. Oh, geez. Yeah. <laughs> so then part of the work was also rebuilding a board and ensuring that it was no longer grassroots, that it was very, that we built a board that understood what governance means. And that's a sort of a tangential topic. But over time, I've realized that you can read about what governance is. And I think the key is when you're faced with a moment when governance is needed, will you recognize it and know how to act? I mean, I feel like governance is kind of a muscle. So one of the things I've learned to do over time is introduce opportunities for governance into board meetings so that the board is practicing that using that muscle, because otherwise, if we just talk about governance in the abstract, I think often in moments where governance is needed, it gets lost. Yeah, And I've kind of learned that in part from those early days. But someone said to me fairly early in my tenure, every CEO gets the board they deserve. (laughs) (laughs) And that's kind of humbling if you think about it, you know, to the extent that maybe one is frustrated with their board. I mean, you really do have to take a step back and say, okay, how might I have contributed to this? Yeah. You know, if I am frustrated, what did I, you know, I don't think we ever, you know, there's two groups in every relationship, but, you know, it's helpful for us to, you know, realize how we might've contributed. Yeah. Well, in any, yeah, like you said, in any relationship, in any situation, you know, looking at like, okay, that's, I mean, we could go on a whole thing about that, (laughs) but you know, you've done, You've written a book. You've got another book coming out, I believe, right? The yep. Fellowship. And you've won a bunch of awards. I mean, like your list is pretty impressive. And you've kind of created a persona for yourself involved with this organization. Was that an intentional move to help support the organization or what has motivated you in those areas? It's funny you say that because I think you speak the truth (laughs) and that makes me kind of uncomfortable. And the reason it does is because it's never been about me. Well, I am the face of the organization. Right. And that is part of my role is to be the face of the organization. And the thing that's always felt uncomfortable to me is that people will make a decision about whether or not to support our organization based on meeting me. And yet the moment I begin to think it's about me, we all have a problem. Because that's a slippery, dangerous slope to go down. And so I really try to think about how, unfortunately, this has a bad connotation, but how am I a tool (laughs) (laughs) to advance the mission of the organization? Because there are things that, you know, when I am being my best self, when I, I am fully living into my talents, it is public speaking, it is writing. And so I think about it, how can I use these things that I am good at? to advance the mission of Women's Bean Project. And that happens to look like having written a book. And I will say I wrote the third law because I was seeing so many stories. I was meeting women and hearing their stories and seeing 
that their lives were so different from what we as a society think of people who are felons or recovering addicts or formerly homeless or, you know, fill in the blank label. And I really wanted to talk about it, that it's not as simple as, well, she made bad choices and therefore she should be punished forever. Right. That really concerned me that we as a society in particular, I think we really judge women more harshly than men. And when a woman goes to prison, we judge her more harshly for leaving her kids. And so the purpose of the third law was to talk about, even as the women I met were working so hard to change their lives, there were still so many things that were pushing back on that change. And that's why it's called the third law. It refers to Newton's third law of motion for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. I also wanted to talk about how it's not possible to witness transformation without being transformed. I couldn't come to work every day and see this amazing transformation in all these people without being affected. And I wanted to share that in large part because the women who come here don't have the same privilege and platform that I do. And I think it's, you know, a lot of it is about balance. Like one of the biggest problems in our, I'd say our society in the world, whatever, and just in humans is we black and white is easier, right? Wrong, right? This, that. But the truth is, that's not the reality. You know, it's that it's that kind of murky middle ground that you have to work to find. And instead of just, oh, she did that, judge her that way or whatever those extremes are and getting people to actually sort of process and believe that people can change and they can grow and they can't, you know, it's not as cut and dry and as simple as that is such a huge challenge. You know, as we work with so many nonprofits and telling their stories that there's that's a really common theme throughout, you know, no matter what the focus is on, whether it's homelessness or it's children in the foster system or whatever it might be, helping kind of show that gray area and how there's room for grace and for redemption and all of that, that we just people aren't programmed to receive immediately, you know? Yes. And I also think it's so interesting that when you really sit down and talk with someone, you realize, or and perhaps they realize, that none of us are really very far removed from many of the things, many of the challenges Women's Bean Project serves face. Many of us know someone who struggled with addiction. And many of us know someone who struggled with domestic violence. You know, and so I think that that was part of it also, of just saying that, because, you know, this tendency humans have to other is that this other person is not so far removed from my own personal experience. I think that that, to your word grace, I think is a good one. It's just giving people grace to recognize. We can make mistakes and we all have. And perhaps, you know, I made just as bad mistakes and didn't get caught. I mean, I think that that's a humbling thing to realize as well. Yeah, for sure. And I very much identify with what you were saying about, you know, it's not being about you, but you are the face and having to make that decision and live in even that tension of how do I capitalize, I guess, on my position and my gifts that I have to ultimately help other people. And because I I've kind of found myself in that same situation many times and I'm like, I don't want it to be about me. And my team goes, yeah, but you do that thing better than anyone here. You need to be out there representing this. And okay, you know, so and I enjoy it, but I never want to like, you know, cross that line to where I'm like trying to, you know, just get attention for myself or whatever. And I think because I'm so aware of it, you know, that's what people are, you know, my wife will say like, well, it'll never happen because you're concerned about the people that would do that, like are the ones that are they're clueless about that. And, you know, but I love that you've been able to use that 
your gifts and your influence in that way to bring more attention to this amazing work that you guys are doing. Because, you know, there's so many nonprofits out there doing really amazing work, which is great. But it also means it gets a little crowded out there sometimes. So to be able to highlight and part of why we wanted to do this podcast is to highlight some amazing nonprofits out there doing amazing work. So I'm glad we could do that. You earlier were asking about the transition from the for-profit world into the nonprofit world. And one of the things that really surprised me is a mentality of scarcity that has a tendency to exist within the nonprofit world. And you kind of alluded to that with that last comment, which is that too often, I think organizations see us all sort of trying to duke it out for who can get the attention or who can get the resources, which comes from a place of scarcity, right? That there's not enough to go around. And so therefore we must all sort of fight over the scraps. Right. And I just, I'm philosophically opposed to that idea. I really think that there is abundance. And if we are our best selves, I often say we have 34 years worth of mistakes we could totally help other organizations avoid. <laughs> Leave you free to make all your own mistakes. Sure. But that ultimately all boats rise with the tide. And so if we can help other organizations by being open source with our information and our knowledge, then ultimately that's going to be better. And it's not about popping up a bunch of women's bean projects around the country. It's really about helping all of us become the best we can be and rising the entire field up versus, you know, trying to figure out how do we win? Yeah, for sure. And I love that because just coincidentally, I mean, this is fourth interview we've done for this podcast and every episode, every guest so far has brought up that exact same thing about scarcity and abundance and how so many people live in that kind of scarcity mentality. And it's got to switch. It's got to change. There's got to be, a, you know, and that's so much of why we want to do this. We work with so many nonprofits and I'm like, you know, talking to the leaders of them and the marketing directors, whoever it is, and realizing like they aren't sharing, you know, connecting with other nonprofits and sharing those experiences and learning from them. And, you know, I thought, man, if we could just facilitate some of that, that would be amazing because in the end it is, it's all boats rise with the tide. And in this case, that's more people that get help, you know, and we're all just trying to do good work and help people. Yeah. Make the world better. Yeah. Which is a big job these days. <laughs> it is, but who better to do it than us? Right. <laughs> if not us, then who, right? Yeah. <laughs> so last question on this topic, if you had to pick, I mean, there's you, like you said, there's probably a ton, but like one big lesson that you've learned that you would want to share with other nonprofits to help them, what would it be? So you're asking for one lesson in 20 years of experience. I know, right? Yeah. That's uh, why yeah. I'm like, we, we'll have you back and do a part two and three yeah, and four and five and six. Later. <laughs> yeah. What I would say is for me, and this is a much more personal thing, is really understanding what it means to lead an organization and what it means to lead in general. And I think that's the greatest evolution I've had personally and the biggest lesson. When I first became the leader of Women's Bean Project, I thought about it as a kind of like a glorified cheerleader. If I, you know, I don't I wouldn't have described it that way in the moment, but in, as I look back, I would. And what I understand now is my job is really only three things. The first is to create a vision and then enlist people to come along with me. And it's not creating a vision in a vacuum, but it's creating a collective vision that then I represent and enlist people to come with me. The second is to bring resources into the organization. So one day I might be focused more, in our case, more on sales or a new sales channel or something like that. And another day I'm meeting with donors, but it's about bringing resources in to help us do our work. 
And then the third thing is to help other people do their job so that they can become the best themselves that they can be. And when I'm doing those three things, I will be the best leader of this organization. And so that probably is, you know, there's a lot of little lessons underneath that, but I would say that's the biggest umbrella lesson is really understanding what my role is. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think that's huge for any leader in any for-profit, nonprofit, anything is, I mean, it comes down to self-awareness, a lot of it, you know, what am I here to do? What am I here not to do? What am I good at? What am I not good at? You know, and how do I compensate for those things and, and not live in my insecurities and, and not let those spill out on everybody else. And, you know, there's so many, (laughs) there's so many things I think for me. Yeah. I mean, you know, my whole, I worked so many places before I started my own businesses and I spent a lot of time before, you know, leading up to starting them, thinking through all the bad experiences, good and bad experiences that I had to go, okay, I want to make sure I lead this way and not that way. And, And I'm still like always learning and always growing. And, you know, sometimes I think, oh, I did this thing amazing. And then the team's like, we really didn't like it when you said that thing, you know, and like, oh, okay, you know, let's, let's, why not? And let's learn and let's grow and get better. And I think I'm a, a stronger leader today than I was last year and last year before the year before that. And I, and I think that's for any good leader to be the goal, like constantly growing and learning. And yeah, yeah, it's a journey, not a destination. Exactly. Okay. We end our interviews with some rapid fire questions. So just quick answers here. What is the one thing that makes you feel connected? So many things are going through my mind. I think it is slowing down. That's a good answer. And not that I judge your answers, but that's a good one. <laughs> I do a little bit. How do you connect to your community? Well, I think largely through Women's Bean Project. I think you know, we talked about this earlier in our conversation that I, you know, widely known as the face of the organization, and that is my connection to the community. For better or worse, I think, you know, when I eventually leave the Bean Project, I may have an existential crisis. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Who in the world of nonprofits would you most like to take to lunch? Oh, gosh. Melinda Gates. Good answer. I'm going to join you for that lunch. Who in the world of nonprofit community do you think we should interview next? I guess besides Melinda Gates, she'd be great. Yeah, <laughs> she would be great. <laughs> if I had her email address, I'd ask her for you. <laughs> Gosh, I think that there's so many places you could go with that because you could, I think it would be interesting to interview someone who is part of fixing some of the challenges that all of our communities have. So for instance, re-entry, community re-entry from prison. Yeah. During the pandemic, we released people in Colorado and I think around the country, we released people with a couple of days notice, yeah. often to homelessness and you know, without a lot of preparation. And and I think there are organizations that are often in many cases very small who are doing a lot of really good work to help people re-enter our community and feel valued and successful. That's great. I love that. Someone you look up to or that inspires you in the world of nonprofits? A woman named Carla Javits. Okay. She used to be the CEO of Redf, R-E-D-F, based in California. She's someone who initially was in the affordable housing world and then became the CEO and recently stepped down to retire and is a senior advisor. What I respect about her is that she has a macro view and she looks at ways. She's not intimidated by policy. Okay. You know, a lot of times, you know, policy and the rules sort of get in the way of the work that we want to do. Her father was Jacob Javits, the senator from New York. Okay. So that's probably why she's not intimidated by policy. Yeah. (laughs) I admire her very much. Nice. Last question. What aspect of your job brings you the most joy? I get joyful when I watch our team members 
So we have on our staff, we have 13 staff members who are permanent staff members, and four of them are program graduates. So they're women who came to us initially with a desire to move back into the workforce. but And then for them to graduate and actually get hired and us to have the opportunity to see them Mm -hmm. continue to grow and blossom, I think that's probably what gives me the most joy, especially because I can remember back to her first day when we hired her and she was part of the program to see now, you know, all the things that each of them have accomplished. One of them, the most senior of them just celebrated her fifth anniversary. That's awesome. And prior, and she replaced someone who had retired from here. And so that's what's cool, right? Is that sort of we do this work and then, you know, it's sort of like raising children, I suppose, on some level, you help people go off into the community. And then occasionally we get to see the long-term benefits. That's amazing. That's incredible. Well, Tamara, thank you so much for your time. This has been really great. I love what you guys are about. I love what Women's Beans Project is doing. I hope we can help bring some more attention to it. And I think you've provided some great insights for uh, nonprofit leaders. Where can people find you and and more information about you and Women's Bean Project? Well, on Twitter, I'm at Tamara Ryan. Okay. And LinkedIn, just Tamara Ryan. It's pretty easy. There you go. But Women's Bean Project can be found at womensbeanproject.com. Awesome. We'll make sure to to get people going over there and checking it out. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed this. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Yes, my friends, we have come to the end of this amazing episode of Nonprofit Connect with Matt Barnes. You made it! Thank you so much for listening this far. And if you'd like to hear more from Nonprofit Connect brought to you by Rogue Creatives, make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on so you don't miss out. We don't care which one. It doesn't really matter. Just just listen. Just subscribe. Just make it come right into your potholes every week so you can hear what's going on. Also, if you're interested in working with us or want to reach out and tell us how amazing we are, learn more, whatever it is, you can visit our website, npconnect.roguecreatives.com. Or just go to roguecreatives.com and you can find the rest. Okay, that's pretty much it. Okay. Bye-bye. Nonprofit Connect with Matt Barnes is hosted and executive produced by me, Matt Barnes. Production is by our amazing friends over at Fame, the B2B podcast agency, along with the team at Rogue Creatives. Production lead is Ella Lamprella Fame. Writing is by Sam Hollis at Fame and Matt Barnes and Taylor Bolanos from Rogue Creatives. Nemanja Kaljaja of Fame is our audio editor, and Arslan Yakub from Fame is our video editor. Creative direction is by Corey Hill of Rogue. Our artwork is designed by Hope O'Kelly and Joshua Marino at Rogue and Ian Salas of Fame. Theme music is composed and performed by Jared Atherton of Chapters. Ella Lamprell of Fame does our booking and guest relations. And Belinda Carter-Thompson of Rogue is the glue that holds it all together. We'd love to give a shout out to our amazing guests for joining us this episode. And thank all of you incredible listeners for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to help us spread some good by giving us a good review. Preferably, you know, five stars with some words saying how amazing we are. That's always helpful. Also, tell your friends and subscribe so we can come straight into your potholes each and every time we have a new episode. We'll catch you next time. Bye. This has been a Rogue Creatives production.